Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> How the devil are you? It's Thursday, it's the podcast, you're here, sit down, grab your brew, we're going in. Uh, talking about going in, my God, you went in hard and strong last week for Joseph Gilgan, and what a man, what an episode, I'm so chuffed it connected with everybody. As I said, I don't think we've had a more brutally honest conversation uh, on, on all of the, the 79 episodes, I mean... God, some things go deep and they go deep very, very quickly. Um, but that's the nature of, of the conversation. But with Joe, I, I felt that he, he really needed a platform to sort of talk and get things off his chest. Um, so thank you for all the responses and, and for telling your mates and downloading because it really means a lot spreading the word of the Two Shot Podcast. Um, this week is episode 79 and it's Jeff Lloyd. Now, you'll know Jeff from his brilliant podcast, Adrift and Reasons to be Cheerful, uh, with the Ed Miller Band. And you'll know him from the radio. I've known him from the radio for years. I've, I've always liked him. And what I've always found about Jeff on the radio is he's very natural. I always thought that if, you know, I ever met up with him for a cup of tea, he'd, he'd be exactly the same. And turns out he is because he invited us around to his house and lucky for producer Griff he didn't have to do any setting up with microphones because Jeff in the top of his house has got a lovely little studio and we sat down we grabbed our brews and we got into it now the only thing I will say we had a bit of time restraints on this which I've never normally have but um, we were running late from we had to get across London very boring traffic you know and um, Jeff had to go and pick up his his little bambino so we had to get out of there quick but it's still a fantastic chat, and I'm really, really pleased that Jeff came on because he's a lovely, lovely fella and bloody good at his job. Uh, he makes it seem effortless what he does, um, and I know it's it's not. But just before I get into it, I want to read you something that Jeff put out in January on on his Twitter feed. And when he when I read it, and it's quite a long thread, so just bear with. But it, it, it connects with our conversation, so I thought it was really important to. Um, preface the podcast with this but when I read it in January I, I sent Jeff a message on, on Twitter just to say how honest and, and brave I thought he was oh, brave is the wrong word isn't it? I thought it was so honest but important that, that he said that and what I'm about to read um, so yeah that's that yeah I'm babbling but let me get on with it so this is a thread uh, that Jeff wrote on his Twitter feed so just bear with my wife apologised to me earlier for missing my 18 years soberversary, if that's a word, yesterday. There was no need. I'd completely forgotten about it. From time to time, people get in touch asking for advice. So, if this is helpful. As far as I can tell, there's no one-size-fits-all definition of what constitutes a drink problem. It's about whether you feel your relationship with alcohol is a healthy one. I didn't wake up every morning and reach for a drink. Some days I even waited until after midday. Drink made me a chaotic friend and a liability at work. My mental health can be a bit wobbly at the best of times. And at the end of a night's drinking, 
when I went home, I could end up in some pretty desolate states. For me, booze and antidepressants were a bad mix too. At the end of a particularly bleak night, I ended up in A&E. I was lucky and was immediately admitted to an NHS hospital for a couple of weeks, which gave me a head start in getting sober. I've known people with varying experiences, but a chat with a doctor is a good start. I never went to AA, but I think it's the best thing you can do. It's the first thing I'd do if I found myself in need. I have friends for whom it's a literal lifesaver. It's important to find a group that suits you. Some are a bit gaudy, others not really. There's been some negative reporting of its success rates, but if you flip the numbers and think of it as a percentage chance of a cure, you'd definitely give it a go in any other situation. People supporting each other is a beautiful thing. Something I found useful was to tell people outright. Previously, when I'd tried to have the odd day or week off the booze, people didn't like it. They'd try to get me to have a drink to make themselves feel comfortable. Something about the idea of cutting down holds up a mirror. Once I'd actually stopped drinking, I'd say to people I had to stop. I got a bit messy on it or it became a problem for me. And 99% of people are incredibly respectful of that. I suppose this is a version of one day at a time. But in the early days, I'd think of it as one decision. All I had to do was not have a drink when I wanted one. Reduce it to a binary choice in the moment rather than thinking about it forever. Probably the main reason I didn't stop drinking sooner is that I was worried I didn't have a personality when sober. I still worry about it, but friends and family tell me they much prefer being around me now. That being said, five years after I stopped drinking, I went to a wedding. An old drinking acquaintance was at my table. Halfway through dinner, she shouted, See him? He used to be a funny fucker. Now he's a boring bastard. Ten years after I stopped drinking, I started seeing a brilliant therapist. He made sense of why drink and me were a bad fit in the first place and helped me with some basics that I'd never addressed. Probably would have if I'd gone to AA. I know therapy is a difficult one. The NHS has been woefully underfunded and overstretched on this and my experience of therapists is that you often need to kiss a few frogs, something many people don't have the luxury of. That's another way in which AA can be so useful. Sorry if I droned on a bit here, but if you think this is bad, you should have heard me when I was drunk. I feel pretty uncomfortable being earnest, but I thought it might be useful to someone, somewhere. And I think on me and Jeff, you know, we, we talk about uh, his worry and certainly what, what people think of him and, and wanting to be pleased and pleasing people. Um, he's a thoroughly, thoroughly decent and lovely fella. Um, and I really wanted to read that thread out because it really touched me when I read it and I thought it was uh, insightful and honest. Um, and I know that someone somewhere would have got something out of it. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. This is episode 79 of the Two Shot Podcast with Jeff Lloyd. Enjoy. I'll see you at the end. I was listening to a drift last night. I was I'd finished this job and I was I was working quite late and I went to go and get some food and I was listening to a drift. I don't know if it was the latest one, but it was when you were talking about getting up at like three forty five for a taxi. Oh yeah, and yeah. And then he wants a little natter. Yeah. I was really feeling for you because I, the you first, must have that on shoots all the time. The, but the first thing I do now 
and I can sense if they're going to be a quiet driver or they're going to be, they're going to want to have a little chat. The headphones, I say to them, I said, don't mean to be rude. I'm just popping my headphones in, even if I've got nothing to listen to, so then I can just close my eyes. Don't say, I've, I've really wanted to do that so for a long time, but I'm very needy for approval. So I've, I've never thought, how, how can I put my headphones on without appearing rude? And you've just unlocked it for me. You say, I don't mean to be rude. I don't mean but- to be rude. The guilt's gone. You yeah. don't need to read, it's fine. And sometimes, it's very early, I take a pillow from the hotel because it just, it's visual. It says, I'm quite tired. Right, yeah, I'm yeah. I put my head down on the pillow and that's 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 my little tip. Do you me. like getting into it with people, though, when they, you know, say, say a, a taxi driver's got a controversial opinion? Do you like arguing the toss? Well, I don't really because if they've got that strong opinion, they're enforcing it on you and that's their opinion. And yeah. they don't want a debate. No. Or, or they don't want any sort of information that's going to ch- get change their mind or their opinion. So what do you, do you think they're either thinking, they're either thinking I'm going to find someone who agrees with, with me because secretly everybody agrees Secret, with secretly, me. Secretly, yeah, 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 yeah. Or they, they're going to be able to say, well, he's one of those, he's one of those liberal elites. Well, it's, it's one or the other, isn't it? I mean, I don't yeah. think, I don't, th- I think they want a challenge because it heightens that you never get to add in my cab today. This geezer came in and he thought this and I told him what was what. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. <laughs> When I used to do the breakfast show on Virgin, they they would send taxis to to bring us into the radio station every day because it was so early in the morning. Yeah, and you know they were bizarre. Almost to a man, they were quite bizarre characters. And there there was this one who we we used to call Gary the, uh, and then we would use the worst word imaginable. <laughs> that was that was our little nickname for him. Um, and because they have to ring you or send you a text message to let you know they're outside, yeah. he'd got my phone number. And this was in the early days when people would send jokes around on text message. <laughs> so I would end up in, it was before WhatsApp or anything like that, I'd, I'd end up getting these terrible, terrible sort of jokes from him on text oh, message. No. And and like a couple of times they were a bit racist. Yeah. So I texted back one time, said, Gary, I've got to be honest, I'm not really comfortable with you sending me racist jokes. And he sent me a message back saying, oh, sorry, mate, I'll leave you out of the racist ones. So, <laughs> so the idea that there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with the racist jokes in his head. He's just like, you have, keep, it's you not the racism like that's the problem. Take him yeah, out. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do you get into it with people? No, no, because I'm so needy for approval. And I'm just scared of conflict and confrontational. I'm the most diffident person. So, you know, a taxi driver can be sitting there. I had one the other week who was going on and on about inheritance tax and how it shouldn't exist at all and you know and there's all these reasons why i think he's wrong but so my, my strategy is to just sit there going oh right yeah yeah do, do you think so mm. yeah i suppose some people could see it like that you know interesting uh, yeah, interesting yeah, thought. yeah 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 but I, I just don't i just want to close down the conversation in such a way that doesn't make them dislike me especially in the day <laughs> like with uber ratings as well it's made me <laughs> such a paranoid person because i th- i think i'm a model passenger i never keep a cab waiting uh i'm, I'm always ready to go and with uber i always learn their name so when i go oh, in the you say hello car, to- yeah say hello to yeah because i oh, want them yeah. to like me and then i think i'm quite empathetic and i will gauge how much they do or don't want to talk and then i'll talk accordingly but i mean generally what i'm just doing is asking a lot of questions because i don't want to talk about myself ever really in, in any situation and then 
Uber had been going for a few years and somebody said, you know, you have an Uber rating. It's not just the drivers. I said, no. So they showed me how to look it up on my phone. And I was something like 4.68. Out of five. five. Yeah. That's Which, well, I don't think good. it is because I think I'm such a model passenger. <laughs> I think if somebody is marking me down, it's basically that they don't like me as a person because I never slam the door, I never keep them waiting, I never tell them which way they should be going, I don't bring food into the Uber, I'm a really great passenger. And and I can only think that some people just say, I don't like that guy, and, and give me a one out of spite. <laughs> you sound five star. I should be five star. You should be five star. And, and actually, um, I got a new phone recently, and it wouldn't. I couldn't log into my old Uber account, so I've got a brand new one, and it's actually made me scared of using Uber because I don't want to lose my five stars. <laughs> Jeff, where does the the neediness come from? The approval, um, the seeking, the the wanting to be is it is it a wanting to be liked yes it is but then then sort of constantly thinking i'm quite not unlikable i don't think i'm nasty or anything but i, I worry that i'm a dickhead or i'm annoying or stuff sort of constantly um i don't know i, I mean if you want to get all therapy about it i'm adopted well, I, I wanted to go into that. I wanted yeah. to go back to that, but you jumped me so, to it. So I was adopted very, very young, six weeks old. And for the first maybe 40 years of my life, if ever, anybody ever asked me about being adopted, I'd say, oh, yeah, but my, I was adopted so young and my mum and dad are so great that it's, it hasn't really had any effect on me. Mm. And then I started doing a, some therapy. I mean, I've had therapy on and off for decades, but I saw this new therapist about five, six years ago. And he says, so what age were you told at? I said, um, I, was, oh, I don't remember not knowing. So I think probably about six years old. He said, and, and can you remember anything about that? I said, I can't, but I know my mum and dad, they will have handled it really well. And, you know, they, they never made me either feel, feel more or less special for being adopted. <coughs> and, and I've rationalised it my whole life. And then he says, but imagine being six and somebody saying to you, oh, you, your mum and dad, they're not actually your mum and dad. There's another mum and dad and you're, you're you know, you, you've come into this family, you've been adopted. Mm. And you're, what you're doing is looking at that as an adult and rationalising it. But a six-year-old wouldn't, no matter how well it was done, no six-year-old would be able to completely process that. And then I, st- then, then I think, oh, maybe <laughs> it's really dumb because I feel like such an idiot for kind of the penny not dropping until I was 40 or whatever. But, but then you start thinking, oh, maybe that's why I've felt like a little bit of an outsider my whole life and I crave people's approval. And yeah. like, I don't like any kind of rejection be- because, because of that. And I don't think there's any fault on my parents' part. I no. just think, you know... There's, there's no right way of doing it. All you can do to some extent is damage limitation. You do a brilliant job of damage limitation, but ultimately that's what you're doing. And did you ever get in touch with your birth mother? No. So, again, like all my childhood, my mum and dad would say, if you ever want to find your birth mother, when you... Did uh, they, they obviously had all the records and knew who she well, was. Well, no, because back then those records didn't really exist oh, in, right. in the same way. So right. I think if you were adopted after maybe the late 70s, early 80s, th- that stuff is quite uh, meticulously kept. And I think social workers are involved early on and it's it's th- there is a route there if you want it. Before that, the, um, if, if I want to see my birth certificate and find out what my birth name was, I can talk to social services and they have that. But beyond that, there's no real 
records and my parents weren't allowed that. So they would say, when you're 18, if you want to find her, we will help you. And I don't remember this at all, but apparently, I mean, it sounds like me on my 18th birthday, my mum came in and wished me happy birthday. And she said, and you know, we've always said, if you want to find your real mum, now is the time. And I, I looked at it, it sounds like something out of the soap opera and said, mum, you're the only mum I'll ever need. And But I don't have any memory of saying that. I mean, I don't know if she's just constructed it to have a nice, happy fluffy memory but I, I just didn't I just thought I've got no interest in finding my birth parents I've got parents why do I need new no. ones might be a nuisance they might want money I mean and also for her to say that on your 18th sounds like that was hanging over them as well in a way yeah because how can it not yeah. and also I think I would think about it like because they were always so supportive but um I, th- I think how could it not feel like a rejection of some sort Again, yeah, you can rationalise these things and think, well, I wouldn't... But but then you've been someone's mum their whole life mm. and then they turn 18, so how can I just like to go and find this other one because I've got these questions? You would be supportive of it, but at the same time, you, you'd, it would rake up some insecurity for mm. you, surely. And we've all heard stories because things like that do happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not just on the 18th, yeah. they can happen yeah. later in life, can't they? Yeah, I mean, the only thing... You know, sometimes I think, God, what if, though... What if they were like super rich and I'd have a big inheritance? <laughs> you don't think that. <laughs> well, I sort of I, I know I know where I was adopted and I think I think she was from Burnage, so I think it's unlikely. How <laughs> was Manchester growing up? Where was it? Were you in Withington? I was born in Withington, but I was actually brought up just south of Manchester in Macclesfield, which oh, right. is like a satellite town of Manchester. Mm. Um I don't know. I mean I, I feel like it's a very kind of bog standard northern working class upbringing i'm from big family my mum was from 12 brothers and sisters and my dad was from seven neither of the families were catholic it was just that sort of wartime post-war baby boom stuff so always a lot of aunties were they were they manchester no, every, everyone was in Macclesfield. Oh, all of Macclesfield, yeah, yeah. right. In fact, I had one auntie, my Auntie Mary, who lived in Hazel Grove, which is in Stockport, which is maybe eight miles down the road. But, you know, it felt like this big undertaking if you ever went to see her. So, and it was quite nice having somebody who lived somewhere else because then you got a sense there was somewhere else. Yeah, instead, yeah. instead of just staying in yeah, yeah, yeah. their place. Yeah, yeah. Um, Did you have brothers and sisters? I've got one of each, yeah, both younger, and neither of whom are adopted. Right. So I think my parents had had some trouble conceiving. Right. And that's why they adopted. And then four years later, my brother came along and four years later, my sister came along. And I'm um, not so much now because I'm getting old, but I was always like this really ginger-haired kid and very bookish and, my, and not at all sporty. And my brother and sister are sort of the opposite. They're blonde hair, blue eyes. Super sporty. Yeah, super sporty. Yeah. But it was funny because I was always, like I say, bookish. And... In in my family, like simultaneously, that was encouraged mm. and seen as this novelty. Like, oh, look at him with a book! Like it was the strangest, <laughs> you know, like it was a strange thing for a kid to be interested in yeah. reading. Or and and that was kind of true of whatever I was interested in. I was always like a, a bit of an oddball. Nobody else seemed to be into it. But do you have a good relationship with your brother and sister? Yeah, yeah. My sister's six years younger, so we got you know to some extent you have a different childhood to your siblings because you, your parents' life is a little bit different at mm. times. They've brought up kids already. Um, we'd moved house, well, actually, when, my, not even when she was that young, but, you know, the house that I think of as the house I grew up in isn't the house that my sister would think she grew up in. So no. you, I think everyone has a, even though you don't think you do, you have a slightly different 
childhood to your siblings. But yeah, we're, we're sort of close-ish. I'm really close with, with my mum and dad. Yeah. And then um, my brother and sister I've got a good relationship with, but we're quite different people. Yeah. Which happens in families all the time. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my wife and her brother, um, you know, they're, they're really close and they've got the same sense of humour and they like the same things. Right. I think, how did that happen? Yeah. yeah. You, see, you, you do see that a lot. And when it's not necessarily with your siblings, you go, oh, wow. Oh, can I have a bit? I wouldn't mind a bit of that, actually. Yeah, and yeah, you kind yeah. of sometimes you wanted that growing up as well. I know a lot of people who find that growing up, they just knocked about with their brother all the time or knocked about with their sister. Yeah. And then it... So it certainly doesn't happen at home sometimes. Although I always, always hated it when my mum would make me and my brother wear same the same clothes. You know, if you ever go oh, to a God. wedding or yeah, something yeah, like that, yeah. it drives me mad. I hate seeing it, though, nowadays when I see kids dress the same. Or when people when kids dress the same as the parents as well. When, when, when people are Don't. too obviously trying to make their kid into a mini-me. Oh, and now I see that all the time. <laughs> I see that. I'm passing down my coolness to you, son. You shall wear this little yeah. Fred, this little Fred Perry. Yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then yeah. they both got the same on. Yeah, Can't and I think that. you do. You know, like I, I'm. A, my wife is very anti trying to mould our son in any way. So in terms of what he likes, what his interests are, um, I think we're both kind of a of a mind that we would hate him to do jobs like ours. My wife is a comedian. Oh, is um, she? Yeah. So so any job which kind of involves being a performer of whatever sort or seeking approval feels very bad to either of us because we both do it for a living. Um, but but she, she you know, hates me playing in the Beatles because she thinks I'm trying to force my tastes on him. But oh, I, I do do it a do, little bit. Do you think you are subconsciously? Or, or, well, I think or, I am consciously, consciously sometimes. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a few Beatles songs that he's really into. And I say to my wife, I don't know how it happened. <laughs> but I mean, I do, I do know how it happened. And she knows how it happened. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, the Muppets as well. I've really got him into the Muppets. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I was crazy about them when I was a kid. So I've sort of force-fed him little bits of the Muppet movie and Muppet show things, and now he really likes those. So I think, right, I'm going to buy him some toys. So despite the fact that I don't want to be one of these people who tries to create a mini-me, there are impulses. I'm just going to get a bit better at curbing them. I mean, do you ever worry sometimes by not... No, I mean, I know he's, he's only young in a year, but yeah. by not going, I don't want him to do anything that I do, forcing him off that track might make right, him yeah. want to go on the track. And I only know that because I know there's certainly some sort of actors and performers who are trying not to put their kids yeah, in that, yeah. on that path or on that route. You hear of it. You, you, they you hear, hear of it. It kind of backfires sometimes. Yeah, I want it? to try and split the difference, whatever that is. So I've, I've got friends who, you know, I've got a couple of friends actually who are comedians who are like, oh, my kid's so funny. He's got the sense of humour. I think he's going to... And I think, no, what you're doing is, is projecting that exactly. onto your child. Yeah. Um, so what, what if that's one extreme and then, you know, your profession must never be spoke, spoke of in the house and they, you know, must get no of the fring, none of the fringe benefits of your profession. I think, like, whatever the difference is between the, the midpoint between those two things is... I think a happy medium is yeah, a good place to be. Yeah, because I've been doing... Like my son's mad on CBeebies house and I've been doing some work at the BBC in Salford recently and uh, that's where they're based and I thought, oh, I bet I could speak to somebody and get him a tour of CBeebies house and go look at it and my wife is very hard line. She's saying, no, absolutely, you are not doing that. He is not having any privileges <laughs> because of your job. <gasps> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's like a perk. No? Yeah, like so my dad was a postman and I'd get loads of elastic bands. 
and I'd get to go in the post office. Well, that was a perk. <laughs> yeah. My mum was a nurse and she, she'd bring home syringes, not with the needles in them, but we'd use those as water pistols. So, you know, I think like a little bit of perks of your parents' job's fine, right? Yeah, I think that's a little bit of leeway's allowed, surely. Yeah. Were you like that at school seeking approval with fellow sort of classmates and teachers? So teachers, yeah, definitely, but not so much my fellow classmates. I think I felt so... Was that my t- stomach or yours? I was, was, just... that, was it a helicopter? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was it you? I was watching you have your lunch. Nothing. Yeah, fellow students, certainly like at primary school, I wasn't that interested in. I was sort of in a world of my own, really. There was a lad called Tristan Maddox who I was friends with, but I wasn't a kid with that many friends, really. But I was obsessed with the teachers to the extent that, and I only remember this quite recently, and I told my wife, and she said that is such a strange thing to do. I would look up my teachers' names in the phone book. Right. And then ring them for a chat during the summer holidays. No. <laughs> yes. I'm with your wife here, Jeff. That's yeah, quite, yeah. That's no, quite I know. Obvious. I mean, I know. <laughs> and did they not respond by going, uh, Jeff, why are you... Well, they probably did, but that's not my memory of it. I just think, oh, Miss Allman, I've not seen her for a couple of weeks. I'll give her a ring and see how it's going. So, yeah, I think I always liked adults a bit better than the other kids, really. Was that throughout your school life? Was that always like that? No, I think when you get to be a teenager, you know, you you notice... Um, and you're, everything, you're changing. Yeah, you changing notice on girls you. and... Yeah. Um, and then I think, you know, it, it was it was definitely when I became a teenager that I became interested in showing off, but I can't sort of think at what, at what point or why, really. Um, I wonder if it was because when I was 11, in the 80s, there was this thing called the assisted place scheme. Mm. And at primary school, the teachers got my parents in and said, look, Jeffrey's quite bright. He could go to this school, you know, it'd be a really good opportunity for him and the government would pay for it. And... Yeah, my dad was a trade union shop steward at the right, post office. Okay. You know, they're not people who'd ever considered private education, but then if someone's saying, oh, your son could really prosper if you put him in here. And we'll, so, we'll yeah, pay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I sat the entrance exam and I went to this school. It's called the King's School in Macclesfield, quite a posh school, and I hated it. I was so miserable. Um, like I, I got, you know, just very stressed out by it and my parents ended up moving me back out of that school into the local comprehensive where I would have gone anyway yeah and at the posh school I was kind of bullied a little bit because I was off the estate and my dad would pick me up in the post office van where everybody else has been picked up in jags yeah of course or whatever yeah and then when I went to the comprehensive school I was bullied a little bit because I'd come from the posh school <laughs> so they thought I must oh, be posh God. yeah yeah um and I wonder if something around that time made me think, okay, what, you know, what's a, what's a survival mode? How, how can I define myself? So I became a bit of a show-off. Was it to make people laugh? Yeah, although I've never had that, you know, I've never wanted to be a comedian or anything like that, but I got interested in, I just, I mean, my whole childhood, like the telly was always on. I think sometimes that's a good signifier of somebody's class. You know, you find out if the telly was on all the time and if people came around, you sat and watched it, or if... You know, when the people come round, you turn the telly off. Yeah. You turn the telly off, you're middle class if it's on all the time. You're working class. And I was just obsessed with the telly. And I think when I was a teenager, I just really got it in my head that I'd like to be on the telly doing something. And did you think that was an option at the time? No, but, um, you know, but, yeah, it's, it's funny. I heard you talking to Carl Pilkington, who I used to work with about this a while ago, and it's a funny you thing. did to... used to work with Carl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I was I was thinking about that today. Was in was that a uh, Piccadilly Pic- Piano Pic- Three in Manchester? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's funny because even the local radio seems doesn't seem like anything you would do mm. because nobody in your world does jobs like that. No, you know? I remember hearing local radio in Lancashire and thinking that's. That's big. You know, when they came to open an electrical store, oh, yeah, yeah. like in Blackpool, and they were going to be here. Red Rose, be... Rock FM. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're big celebrities because I, I listen to them on the radio. Yeah, definitely. And and I did. I mean, I got obsessed with listening to the radio. Um, but it didn't feel like something people did. And I, but I just got it in my head. I think I have this thing in my head sometimes to my detriment where I think, well, if somebody else can have it, why can't I? I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to think, can't you? Maybe, but I think it's the I think it's the sort of seed of a lot of unhappiness as well, isn't it? From where? I don't know. When you start thinking, oh, somebody else can have a yacht, why can't I? Well, no, I mean you're talking about a, a huge thing there, but I'm more thinking about well, if you say to a lad, a young lad who's got aspirations of being on the telly, well. Well, yeah. Well, why can't you? Yeah. Why can't Why can't that be you? Well, I couldn't do anything like that. Look at them. Why can't that be you? Well, there's there's no path, or at least back then, it didn't seem like there was any path from being a kid in a comprehensive school in Macclesfield to being on the radio or on the telly. But I don't think so anybody d- thinks that there is. I mean, maybe more so nowadays That's because there's different routes. Yeah. Um, and you know, I remember someone saying they went into a school. And they were asking like the kids about what they wanted to do, and they're you know, thirteen, fourteen year olds. You know, I don't want to be on the telly. Oh, great! You want to act? No, I just want to be on the telly. Right. So, but that's more. I want to be famous. Right. It is. That's kind of that route, isn't it? I guess. It's like, yeah, oh. yeah. But I remember, you know, going to tell the careers teacher I wanted to be a telly presenter, and them um, getting. Oh. It was like a um, a filing card system that the careers teachers used to have, and somehow they would match up your personality <laughs> yeah. and your results to a job, and it came back to well, why don't you try for a YTS in NatWest Bank or oh, something like that? Fuck yeah, off. yeah. So, so what I did was I looked at magazines like Looking. And the Radio Times that I'd read about. I used to collect looking. Did you? Yeah. And at the back, they'd have, have they'd have the profiles of people. So I'd see the people who were on the telly, and it seemed to me that all of them had got onto the telly by being on the radio first. So I thought, oh, well, I should try and get on the radio then. Mm. And then you look at how people get on the radio, and they'd all done hospital radio. Uh, so I just wrote to the local hospital radio in Macclesfield, and Sort of from the first day that I walked into a radio studio, the, even it was little sort of podunk hospital radio studio, I didn't want to do anything else, really. Really? Yeah, like the smell. Of, you, you know, you can sometimes hear stories like this and think about people like working these long hours for free and starting at the bottom. But I was so consumed by it, it didn't feel like the bottom. It just felt like just getting to be in that room. Yeah. While, you know, somebody who essentially probably was like a local mobile DJ did some yeah. cheesy hospital radio show. Just being in that room with that red light going on and the turntables going around and the faders and all the lights and things that that felt as ex- as exciting as anything I've subsequently done. You know, and what I th- think is, and ge- this is genuine. What I've always liked about you on on the radio or listening to a podcast is it's a, you've got a very very natural way there's nothing hard selly about you like some there's some DJs I find quite upsetting to hear because it's, <laughs> I know because I, 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 I go that's not you yeah that, that's not you. I mean I don't I know we don't need everybody to be real and people have got personas but you've got a very nice 
relaxing flow. Yeah, but I mean, it, ta- it takes a while to... The first bit of advice anybody gives you when you want to do radio is be yourself. But I think it takes a long time to be yourself. Well, I was going to say, when did you, how did it... What, what was it like hospital radio? Were you finding a voice there? Oh, yeah, or? but I mean, it was, it was awful. Like, so sometime, some time ago, I went back to my mum and dad's house and I found a box of tapes. You didn't. I did, and I found me on hospital radio at the age of 14 or 15. Please tell me you've got some. I haven't, I haven't, no. Oh. I, don't, I, mean, I, don't, I haven't even got a tape player, but I listened to it, and I thought, oh, this is, this. I'm going to see, like, whatever it is that I've ended up doing for a living, I'm going to hear a kernel of it in there. And I listened to it, and it, it wasn't just that it was terrible, because there's an inexperience. It's, I just couldn't hear any potential in there. <laughs> I think if some, if some kid had sent me that and said, what do you think? I'd be trying to nudge, nudge them in a different direction. You know, have you thought about maybe working in production? Or yeah. Something? Yeah. Um, so I don't, the, a big chain, turning point for me really with radio and being myself is when I started off, I went from hospital radio to volunteering at Piccadilly Radio to getting a job on local radio in Stockport. Oh, so that was the, the next step from hospital. It was to go and do, was it volunteering? Volunteer? Yeah, so I used to go and answer the phones at Piccadilly and do film reviews. Right. But in terms of like getting getting a job on the radio, I got in with this radio station in Stockport, which was called KFM, and it was like the first six music style station All right. in Britain. Yeah. And, and it, you know, they didn't make any money, and it got bought by a local radio station called Signal. But one of the guys who'd, who was on there from the <coughs> off was Craig Cash, Right. Who, you know, with Carolina Hearn created Mrs. Merton and the Royal Family and so on. And he, I mean, it was an incredible place to work. He he used to do the late night show Monday to Thursday. Did he? And then on a weekend, it was John Ronson. Wow. Who's, of course, gone on to write some amazing books like The Psychopath Test and Men Who Stare at Goats. And he's a great uh, film writer and and, um, podcaster in his own right. So Caroline was around as well. And then you'd have like lots of people from the Manchester scene like Terry Christian or 808 State all doing shows as well. So it was quite an interesting little place. Great time to be a Manchester. It was, it really was. Um, But Craig didn't sound like someone on the radio. Because he sounded like Craig. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, you 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 can't sound like Craig and sound like someone on the radio. Got, no. So he, there was no airs and graces. He wouldn't be, you know, talking... Uh, there'd be no patter to what he was doing. If something, you know, he'd seen something funny, he'd, he'd tell a little story from his life and, uh, and, and he'd be really passionate about music and play a Pixies record next to a Frank Sinatra record next to a Sonic Youth record. You know, it was really eclectic and and it was listening to how Craig did it actually that made me think oh I don't need to be anything different than or what put I put on any sort yeah, of persona ex- exactly yeah, yeah 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 um so that made a big difference to me but at the same time I was only about 19 oh god you're still it, so young yeah yeah Craig used to call me the boy DJ and he used to get he was he was so good with me really because I was being paid I think like 10 pounds a show or something and all the the grown-up DJs, the guys in the 30s and stuff, were getting 50, and Craig would go in screaming at the bosses on my behalf and saying... Did he? Yeah, yeah, he was brilliant. And, you know, and then I got fired off the right... Craig got fired, and then I got fired not what long did, What did he get fired for? Craig got fired because he was playing Sonic Youth records next to Frank Sinatra records Jesus. next to... You know, on a radio station that most of the time was playing Take That. Right, OK. By this point. Um, 
And then why did you get fired? <laughs> well, there's a story. So I got fired a couple of times. Um, How did you get fired twice? <laughs> so I, got, I can't remember why I got fired the first time. I, th- I think it had something to do with the fact it was this radio station that they they stopped having programmes on at night. They just took programmes from a sustaining service, you know, like a network somewhere. Right. And because I wasn't quite, maybe I was 17 at that point, I wasn't old enough to go to pubs, uh, or maybe I was a bit older and didn't have the money to go to pubs. Me and my mates had sort of like, have keys to the radio station, go and hang up, hang out in there. Really? At night. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And I, th- I think there was, you know, something they didn't like about a bunch of like teenage lads. How do you think? Treating the radio station <laughs> like a doss house. And, and then the second time I got sacked, it was, um, it was a bit, it's a bit bleak, actually. It's a it's bleak right. story. Unless you don't want to talk no, about no, it. No, no, I'll talk about it. But I mean, I used to tell this story as if it was funny. And then my wife said to me, you know, that's just a really depressing story. And I've never been able to tell it since, really. Um, I was on Scroobius Pip's podcast a couple of years ago, and I tried that. But anyway, so fast forward, I'm I'm 20, 21. I'm drinking a lot by this stage. Right. And I should add at this point, I've not had a drink for 18 years. But I was really, you know, I was was drinking a lot and, and... it was the start of what ended up being, you know, a, an adulthood full of mental health problems. But it was the first time I had an episode as such. Right. And I got this sort of manic idea into my head that I was going to, um, I was going to move to Paris and become a musician. Cool. Now I don't speak any French. I don't really play a musical instrument, and I don't. I didn't have the means to move to Paris. So those are, those are three important parts of the story. The other important part of the story is that I didn't make a plan. I was just out one night drinking and thought, "Oh God, this is what I'm going to do." So I hitchhiked to 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 Calais, uh, to Dover. I got yeah. a, a ferry to Calais. Had this sort of strange drunken hitchhiking trip to Paris. I mean, it was, it was quite, it's quite bizarre. It all feels surreal when I think about it. Like there's this, I was in the, the cab of this big 18 wheeler lorry with a French lorry driver who didn't speak English, who had a crate of, you know, there's little stubby bottles of beer. And we were just drinking in this cab going down the French motorways. Then he dropped me off somewhere and some guy picked me up in this very old Citroen that he drove on the motorway about 20 miles an hour. And he was just listening to Disney songs the whole time. I thought, Oh, well, this is it. This is it. I'm going to, I'm going to be murdered. Yeah. Um, and but I wasn't murdered. I eventually ended up in Paris and like slept under a bridge and then sort of wandered around the next day in a sort of I don't know if it was a kind of a, a manic stupor or a drunken stupor or whatever it was. And then at some point, reality struck and I had to ring my parents and say, "Mom, Dad, I'm in Paris." Because I'd basically I'd gone missing. I hadn't told anyone. Oh, you didn't tell I'd, anybody. No, I'd gone out after a radio show one night and just made this decision whilst drunk. Whilst yourself, while you were drinking by yourself? I'd been out with someone and then, you know, gone off on my own afterwards. But, you know, not said anything about it. So whatever that episode was, mm. uh, I, I basically ended up missing for four or five days. Jesus. Um, and there wasn't a job for me when I came back. No wonder. Yeah. Your parents must have been worried to take that. Yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, it's not nice to think about. No. Um... Were you aware at that point? Well, you probably weren't. How old were you? 20, 21. So you weren't aware that there was any sort of problem with drinking, or were you? No, I wasn't, no, because, you know, you know, it's like culturally anyway. Like everyone over, drinks uh, in the... Over here, yeah. Yeah, and everything, something's wrong with you if you can't mm. go out and drink that much. But I, I think it wasn't just, you know, after that I was... Um, 
you know, I was under a mental, I wasn't in a mental hospital at that point, but I was under a mental hospital outpatients for a while and, you know, I was medicated and they... who Whose idea was that to... Well, I think sort of when I called my parents and explained what had happened, my mum, you know, her first thing was to take me to the doctors. And because then, she was a nurse? Yeah, or, or because, you know, it's a straight, it's an unusual behaviour. And I think, you know, by the time I got round to ringing them and trying to figure out a way to get back from Paris to Manchester, um, I think it was obvious that, you know, it, it was quite an erratic thing to do. And even, like, now we talk about mental health things a lot more openly than we yeah. did back then. But I think even then that behaviour was so extreme that... Um, you know, that my mum knew the thing to do would be to take me to a, a doctor, so... And what did the doctor say? Well, the doctor, you know, at the time it was a diagnosis of bipolar, which, you know, over the years I've been reassessed at different points and sometimes it comes up as uh, cyclothymia, which is a, a milder version of bipolar. Um, but the, the, the big thing that has made the difference for me and helped me get under control is just not drinking, though, because if you're depressive... And you, you know, you're feeling suicidal or whatever. Drink will. Well, it's not going to make it worse. Yeah, because what what drink does is make you think, ah, oh, fuck it. And you know, if the ah, oh, fuck it is, all right, I'm going to go throw myself off under a train or whatever. That's that's not good. And if mm. if you're in a manic episode where you think, okay, I'm going to um, put five thousand pounds on a credit card and you know go to the Maldives or whatever it would be, the the drink makes you think, ah, oh, fuck it. Yeah, what does it matter? That massive extreme. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. It's it's quite good to take that out of the equation and just be dealing with those, those extremes without drink being a factor, really. And how long were you under sort of doctor's care at that stage? Well, so so then I went on Medicaid. I never went on anything like lithium, which is a mood stabiliser, yeah. but I went on sort of different antidepressants and have been fairly much on and off ever since. Um, were they working for you? I don't know. Because you, obviously at that point you were still drinking. Yeah. So, I mean... The short answer is no, because even though I didn't do anything quite as erratic as go missing for four or five days yeah. since, like I've, I've got some very black places subsequently. So if the antidepressants were working, the the booze was counteracting them. Exactly, it's cancelling uh, it out. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Um, and I genuinely don't know if I take them as placebo or not. Did you read Johan Hari's last book? No. So there's a little bit of con- controversy around it. Well, I heard about it, yeah. You know, some people said, oh, he's saying ignore science and throw away your antidepressants, which I don't think quite that is what he was saying. He was talking about, you know, the underlying issues and how connection is as important as anything else uh, with mental health, which i you know, got a lot of sympathy for. But, but, but anyway, I mean, I take them because why not, right? I think, you know, if they are acting as a safety net then I'm going to carry on letting them do that. If they're not, and it's just tricking my brain into thinking they are, then it's great to have that trick. And they are working. You're not having any sort of episodes. Yeah, no, I've not been... Yeah, I've, I've not... 2014, I had a bad year of it, but I've not had anything sort of sig- significant. I mean, a little bit ups and downs, but, you know, nothing, nothing really bad since then. Nothing where I've kind of gone to bed for weeks for a few years. So maybe I'm due one. Don't say that. Don't spring that on me. <laughs> Maybe this very heavy conversation is going to send me spiralling into a depressive episode. I really hope not, Jeff. Don't say that. I walk out of here with loads of guilt. When was it? Was there a moment when the drinking reached such an extent that it 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 worried you? 
No, and it should have done really, you know. Because usually, you know, when you speak to people, they go, "Well, I got to this point, and it was the lowest point, and then then I knew." No, I know what the, I know what I should have known. So I was drinking so much that I. They used to say it was an ulcer, but I think they've changed their mind on what constitutes an ulcer now. But I was getting such bad acid indigestion and mm. reflux that I, w- I would wake up in the night with like, pains in my chest. So I started sleeping with a bottle of Baileys next to the bed because I thought, ca- oh, yeah, the gosh. sort of creaminess of the Baileys will <laughs> cancel out the heartburn. Oh my god! I remember my dad used to have a glass of milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bloody sleeping with the same Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was was no one stepping in or intervening at this point? Friends or family to no, go, Jeff? I think there's something going on here. Not really. Um, like subsequently, you you know, you talk to people and people have been great by and large, and you know, people say I was worried about you at this point, but at the time, I think as quite forceful in in how much I really loved drinking and being. Drunk, I think it sort of made it a central pillar of my personality. Right, everyone, let's go to the pub, let's do this, let's see where tonight will take Were you always and, that type of person? Y- y- well, you I wanted everybody to, let's all drink. Yeah, but I, I mean, the thing is, I'm not that type of person. No, I was going to say, you don't drink, seem that yeah, at all. I think the drink, uh, you know, it was the drink was really just masking the fact that I'm not that type of person. Mm. And again, I think back to when I was at that first radio station I worked at in Stockport with Craig and these other guys, we'd go to the pub next door... Um, and everybody had seemed so funny. You know, Craig is the funniest person, and all these, you know, guys would have the stories and they'd be quick-witted. And and before I really started drinking, I would just sit there shrinking in the corner, and I'd feel like I didn't deserve a place at the table and I wasn't interesting or funny enough or whatever. And then you start drinking, and, of course, you think one of the great things drink does for you is you think you are the most interesting <laughs> and the most funny person at the table. Um, and I think that partly was why I got into drinking so much in the first place. It made me feel like I had a personality. Yeah. Um, and now like, I think about it, and I think if I was, for whatever reason, if we got a kid on work experience and we'd gone out to the pub with him, I'm not expecting some 18-year-old kid to be like he's at the Algonquin round table no, regaling us not. with anecdotes. And the you know the pressure feels really silly now with hindsight. Yeah, to, to but, even but he'd like feel that. that. That 18-year-old yeah, 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 that one, yeah. it has, that's the yeah. same as what you felt. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're young, you want to, you kind of want to be part of it. You yeah. Want, but, you know, you're running before you're, you're running before you can actually walk yeah. to, to it and be that, that type yeah. of person. And so the big, you know, the, the big thing since I've stopped drinking, really, or the thing that sort of dominates my life, is just feeling socially uncomfortable the whole time, which I've been able to turn into something with a drift. I mean, if people haven't heard that podcast, it's it's kind of a podcast about social awkwardness and all yeah. these sort of tiny moments in life. But, you know, I, I've, I don't think I ever liked being around a lot of people in the first place. I'm quite introverted. Like, I'm really enjoying talking to you in a one on, one-on-one setting. Yeah. But I went to my best friend's wedding the other week and just the thought of sitting at a table with, you know, six or eight people, some of whom I know, some of whom I don't, was terrifying to me. No, but I find that I yeah. I would quite happily stay in and swerve, swerve yeah. that. Or if I've got... I don't want to go to the, these big do's. I don't. I can't. Oh, I mean, it can well, ruin... Well, it's really hard because I can't do small talk. Yeah. So then, in my mind, I'm worried that because I can't do small talk, I'm going to say something that's going to offend or upset yeah, yeah, somebody. Yeah. Or I'll be so nervous that I'll come across in a certain way. Yep. 
because I don't know what to do in that situation. <laughs> I went to a party. My insurance salesman had a 60th birthday party, and it was somewhere swanky, the Claridge's Hotel in London. And I got introdu- introduced by him to another of his clients who was a much older, very successful businessman, and the three of us talked for a while. Then, because it's my life insurance salesman's birthday, he's called away somewhere else. I carry on talking to this fella. After about 30 seconds, he shakes my hand and says, Jeff, it was very nice to meet you, and then just turns his back on me and stands staring at the wall. What? Like, my small talk is so bad oh that somebody God. would rather stare at a wall than talk to me. I wish I had the balls to do I that. Know, I Can know. you imagine? Because I'm just constantly pretending that I need the toilet. <laughs> Where's Jack? Is the toilet again? Yeah, yeah. Again? Has he got that problem? Yeah, it yeah. seems like it. I would rather people think that I've got irritable bowel syndrome than have to make small talk. <laughs> it's just excruciating. When, because I've always more or less heard you with a partner. Yeah, so um, when do you I was... think that's is that something that you? Ba- I mean, I know you bounce off people, but do you do you feel you need that on radio? So I do a little bit of radio where I, I don't do that. So uh, you know, I used I used to do this Beatles show where it's just sort of me talking about the Beatles. Mm. And that was fine. I'd done a bit of filling in on radio too recently, and it, it's fine. But I prefer. I prefer radio, which is kind of a conversation of sorts, to just sit in there. You know, I know some people really love that intimacy of them and a microphone, but I've, I've you know, prefer. It but it can still be quite intimate when there's there's two people having that conversation. Yeah, I think so, and you feel like you're eavesdropping. Yeah, a little bit. And yeah, yeah. I've done a lot of stuff with callers in the past, so you can get that with callers or interviewees or whatever. But, um. I, I never sort of never intended it to be like that. I was on this local radio station in Stockport, and then after I got sacked, I ended up on Piccadilly Key 103 Radio Manchester, and I was sort of ended up in a double act by mistake with a guy called Pete. Yeah, and we were this double act for ten years, and we ended up sort of then moving came to, to Virgin London, yeah. and then doing the Virgin Breakfast Show. Um, and it, but it was just sort of by accident because Craig lived near Craig Cash lived near Pete, and after I'd been fired off the radio, as I, I mean, this is how this tangent all started. But Craig and Caroline felt sorry for me, so they gave me a job on Mrs. Merton. Oh, did they? Yeah, so, I mean, they created a job, basically. For you? For me, yeah, and it was fetching Caroline Benson and Hedges and Asti Spumante <laughs> and making sure that she just had the the exact right amount of Asti Spumante <laughs> before she did the interviews. Um, and then Craig moved house and he lived near Pete Mitchell, who was this local radio guy, and he kept badgering him to get, you know, get Jeff in there, get Jeff in there. And Pete did. I was producing this alternative music show of his. And then one day they asked him to fill in on a breakfast show and he said, have you got any ideas? And I said, yeah, I've got a few. He said, well, you just come in on the first day to make sure it all runs smoothly. So I went in and a couple of times he would speak to me on the air. And then after we, after we came off, the bosses said, oh, if he's going to speak, will you give him a microphone? Because it sounds bad that he's off mic. And that was, you know, that's how that that's double how it was just sort of an accident, really. And was it a double act that obviously worked tremendously well on radio? But were you good friends off? Yeah, I think, I think it's more like, like I think of Pete a little bit like a brother mm. in a certain way, in that were people who were thrown together in an you know the beginning of the relationship is 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 an odd one. Yeah, I don't know if it would have necessarily developed organically if he'd just been someone I'd gone to school with because we're quite different types but yeah yeah um yeah I'm you know I I love him uh but 
I genuinely think that I fit, if I didn't make the effort to ring ring him, he wouldn't do. Like, it, I yeah. would never hear from him for the rest of my life, um, just because that's the type of person he is. He's sort of gruff and a little bit aloof. Yeah, um, yeah, you know. And then Annabelle, who I do the podcast with, we did radio for another ten years or so after that. And you know, we're very close friends in real life, which I think comes across. I think yeah. you can, you can't. I don't think you can fake that. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's a very, very natural. It's, which is why it always seems strange to me when radio stations just pluck two people and put them together and hope there's going to be chemistry there. Well, it's, it kind of baffled me. And, you know, there was one very specific one last year that happened. Yeah. And I kept, kept listening out of intrigue because I thought the last time a certain, this certain person was was doing a double act with somebody, it really worked. Yeah. And this just doesn't work. There's zero yeah. chemistry at all. I think sort of start with the chemistry and then work out. Well, you'd think, wouldn't yeah. you? Don't just go, well, well, I like him and I like her, let's stick them together. And I'm sure it'll work because they're radio professionals. Yeah. Doesn't really work no. like that, I don't think. And I think. think it can do on telly a little bit because it's, you know, they're just doing items, aren't they? Mm. But with radio, because it's so personal... Um, and so much of it is a conversation. You've got to fill all these hours worth of airtime. There needs to be something there. And that's that's was sort of my starting point with that podcast with Ed Miliband as well. So he'd been on the radio show, and we'd done this interview in the run-up to 2015, which went, somebody used a phrase that I really like. I, I don't know who it is, so I can't credit them. But they said it didn't go viral, but it went fungal. <laughs> so, it's like, so it's not quite full-on viral. Um, and... Uh, you know, he'd he'd come on the show, and then there were these articles in the tele from the Telegraph to the Independent saying, "Is this the interview that's going to make Ed Miliband prime minister?" Because he came across differently in that interview to what he might have done if you'd seen him on Newsnight yeah. or whatever. And the reason was that I'd seen him speak at a couple of like events, Fabian Society things or whatever, and thought, "Oh God, you're nothing like the Ed I see on television." So I just wanted to try and get that out of him. And then when I finished the radio show and I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, podcast with this big part of it, and I, I was feeling like really glum about how divided everyone was over Brexit and the state of things in America with Trump and just how politics just seemed chaotic and thought, well, if you can't kind of get excited about what's going on in politics, because I think sometimes I follow current affairs like other people follow sports. Right. So I'm not a sports fan, but so, you know, you have that, you have your team, your support, and mm. you see the comings and goings and so on. But if you can't kind of feel inspired by what's going on there, then what are the ideas out there for fixing the world and making it a better place? So that was my idea. And then I thought, I bet Ed would be great on that, just because he must have heard ideas constantly when he was putting together a manifesto and, and even before that putting together policies with Gordon Brown so did you approach him about it yeah yeah I just wrote him a note um and you know got a message back fairly much straight away saying oh I love that idea why don't you pop round yeah brilliant yeah and so it was born yeah and it's um and and it, but it was building on that chemistry in that original interview yeah and we've become good friends really but it's funny, isn't it? You know, we were talking earlier about DJs in the 80s were ones that, that kind of went through radio and then went on to the television. Sometimes it really doesn't work. No. Some people are just for radio, aren't Yeah, they? yeah, yeah. Have you ever thought about going and... F- well, I've done some bits and, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm very good at it. You know, I, I did... Game of Thrones has one of those spin-off shows. The Throne Cast. Yeah, and yeah. I hosted the first three series of that, and the first couple were online only, so it was very low pressure. Mm. And then it was going well, so they put the third one on the telly, and somebody wrote into Sky, it was good, it was saying only Sky would put the most 
expensive program ever made for television followed by the cheapest program ever made for television because <laughs> that's what it was basically we wouldn't get the episodes in advance i'd have to sort of download it off american tv the night before sit and write some thoughts on it and then just busk it and we did you know sometimes get actors in if hbo were feeling generous and sometimes we wouldn't and there was nothing there though so we just had the time to fill and nothing to fill it with and no money to fill it with and i really loved doing it um but i don't know really that i'm very good at it and certainly when sky got a new boss they didn't think so do you enjoy it though yeah i really enjoyed it yeah but you know just because you enjoy something doesn't mean somebody should give you money to do it you know true but we see it see it and hear it all the time yeah (laughs) but you obviously love radio you obviously love broadcasting yeah i do i don't particularly miss being on the radio every day but i really like what i've really liked doing recently is i've been on five live and I've never done that type of radio before. I've only ever played records and talked in between. Mm. And with this, it's speech radio, and you're doing a lot of interviews. Um, and I've really felt quite stretched by that. So I'd like to do a bit more of that, I think. See, so he's still learning after all this time, you say. <laughs> you got to, haven't you? Well, I think you do have to in, in every sort of job. You don't, want to, you, just... you don't want to embarrass yourself, is, is the thing. Well, no, but you've got to sort of fail a little bit But, that, but what I mean is you've got to keep getting better at it, mm. and you've got to you know, worry about whether your programme or whatever it is you're making is good. Because if it isn't, then somebody can point and laugh at it and say, oh, that's terrible, or that guy's embarrassed. So I'm always just trying to get a bit better. I've got two friends. I'm going to have to pick my son up from nursery in a second. But Sorry. I've got two friends both called Chris. And if I do something good on the radio, um, I think, oh, I really hope Chris heard that because um, he's, he's like this positive person. He's got good taste. And then if... I do something where I think I've not done a good job of that. I think, oh, shit. I hope the other Chris didn't hear that because he's really sort of cynical <laughs> and he's also got good taste and I'm worried that I'd be embarrassing myself in front of him. So I have a little Chris test. Like if both Chris's would have liked it, then I'm happy with it. Speaking of happiness, I just want to ask you one more thing. And I don't ask this a lot, but I do sometimes. Are you happy? It's a good... Yeah, I'm not. I think I'm happy, but I'm not content. I think what 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 aren't you content with? Well, I'm just constantly worried. You know, I'm a worrier. Like I worry, oh God, what if this doesn't happen, or what if this does happen, then I can't pay the mortgage. What if we're destitute? What if I have to live under a bridge? What if my wife takes my son back to America because I'm not able to support the family and the relationship breaks down? So I'm not happy in that regard. But I really love what I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, I don't feel like I said before. I'm not kind of missing being on the radio every day, Um, and. You know, I'm very happy in my personal life, despite the fear that my wife could leave me and move back to America with my son. Jeff, absolute pleasure. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having me on. Is that all right? Enjoy it. Yeah, very much yeah. so. I'm sorry we've got to cut it short. It's but... all right. It was great. And another episode is done. Um, I hope you got something out of that, Jeff. Is a lovely fella, and I'll be really honest with you. I would have loved another hour with him. Um, but time we're against us. Who knows? Maybe when he's free, we'll come back on and we'll 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 have another chat. Because um, I love spending time with him. He, he was a really really nice guy, and honest, so so honest. Um, and what more can we ask? Right. Well, I best be off because next week is episode eighty. We are twenty episodes away from our hundredth episode. Can you believe it? What are we going to do? Someone give me some ideas. We've got to do something special. Um, you know about save the date, don't you? Save this date. 
Sunday, April the 14th. If you're in London, we've got something special for you. I'll tell you much more about it next week. Until then, stay safe, take care. I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Take care of yourself. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Cheers.